Thank you for joining us as we explore the varied intersections of food and feminism. I'm your host, Hope, and joining me today is my co-host, Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Hey, everyone. And Emily, the owner of Emily's Oysters in Bath, Maine. Hey. So, Emily, how did you get started um, as an oyster farmer? Oh, well, that's a sort of a long, convoluted story. (laughs) Um, I grew up in Freeport, Maine, which is about 20 minutes away from where I live now. Um, And I spent most of my, like, post, well, also pre, pre and post college years um, working on the water in sort of various capacities from traditional sailing to working on lobster boats and you know, ultimately I just love to be on the water. Um, and at some point I found my way back to Maine and was trying to figure out how I could, you know, start a business, be self-employed, um, and be working on the water in a way that felt kind of a little bit more sustainable than some wild fisheries feel. And, um, and, you know, just felt more worthwhile, um, to do. And, I came to oyster farming through a friend who um, is also a female who grows oysters in Yarmouth. Um, Her name is Amanda Moser, and she owns a business called Lane's Island Oysters. Um, And I just, I befriended her by chance um, and spent the better part of a summer kind of hanging out with her. And she took me out to her farm and sort of showed me the ropes and let me, you know, pester her and just be around in general. And I totally fell in love with it, uh, through that, um, experience. And she, because we had become friends, just sort of held my hand through the whole startup process and the leasing process with the state. And, um, and yeah, was a kind of a mentor to me, to me in that, um, early stage and it just was it was totally by chance um and totally like a perfect fit for me (laughs) it was really cool that's awesome I mean um you know I was thinking that maybe you were kind of unique as a as a woman um oyster farmer so it's it's interesting that you actually got your start because of the help of another woman so yeah female oyster farmers out there (laughs) there you know there actually are more than you might think um And, uh, I think, you know, the fact that I met Amanda and that she was a female is probably the only reason that I am like where I am today, because I think if she had just been any other dude, I would have been much less like comfortable being like, Hey, I really like, I'm interested in what you do. And I would love to come out on the water with you. And it just, I don't know, we you know, I have a lot of male friends and I have had a lot of male mentors on the water as well. But there was just like, there was something really easy in our rapport um, just because we were both women and she was still early in her oyster farming career that just like, it was just easy. Um, and just really, I don't know, honest and cool and like, yeah. That's so, that's so neat. Did, did she, did they, did it feel ever like, I would think that sh- there would be competition, right? Especially businesses. And you guys are so close in geographical proximity, like Bath and Freeport to Yarmouth. Um, did, did ever that any of it play in it? That where she didn't, you know, want to support a, a new business in her market? You know, if she had been any other person, I think that might've been a problem, but she, just because of who she is, um, 
<laughs> she's just very like welcoming, accepting, just friendly in general. And I think I was at the time, like, you know, it's a, an investment in time to get to the point where you have oysters that you can sell in any kind of capacity. And she was already like two or three years ahead of me in that front. So I, I think I was not very threatening as a new joiner to the industry in that sense. Um, and also we just, from the start, like we had a really good differing balance of skills. Like I had a lot of, I have a lot of hard skills and like how to operate boats and like tie knots and like just generally work on the water. And her background is really more in science and she knows a lot more about the biology behind you know, an oyster's life cycle and like what they eat and, you know, changes in the environment and that sort of thing. And so like the two of us together kind of make like one perfect oyster farmer. (laughs) And so while we have separate businesses, we still uh, work really cooperatively together a lot of the time, um, just because we do complement each other so well. Um, So I think that was also part of it. Um, And we also... I think have gone different directions with how we sort of sell and market our oysters, um, which was helpful too. I've really like gone off the rails in terms of your average Joe Maine oyster farmer in my marketing and like business plan. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Emily? Cause I know you have a, um, a CSA yep. model, um, which is incredibly unique for any type of fishery. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, from the point in time in which I had switched from like just messing around with growing oysters to being like, all right, I want to turn this into a business. Um, I sort of in, and this is how I go about everything was like, how can I do this in a way that is totally different and completely unique from everyone else? Cause I was looking at a lot of like male competitors in the industry specifically at the time and like really wanting to differentiate myself and my product um, and everything about what I do from them, especially. Um, And I just really, I don't know, I really like people and I like interacting with people. And I think that um, for whatever reason, uh, seafood products and like fisheries products just aren't really treated like, you know, normal farm crops are, Um, you know, every, terrestrial like land farmer has a CSA program of some sort you know there are flower CSAs or meat CSAs like I was like well, why not an oyster CSA I don't think anyone's ever done that and like not everybody likes oysters but the people who like oysters like really like oysters usually <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just seemed like kind of a cool a cool way to go about it and it never was really intended to be like the sole you know, means of selling oysters for me. I was always planning on, you know, also maybe doing some wholesaling and selling to restaurants and um, that sort of thing. But I really like grabbed onto that, the, you know, the typical or traditional like farm marketing kind of concepts and been like, why does no one use these with fisheries? It's so weird. Now, what do you think is the breakdown of your sales? Like, um, is it mostly CSA or have you um, branched out to restaurants and, and more traditional so that's a great question. And I am, my business is still new enough um, that I am not, haven't really like fully fleshed out all of my different outlets that I would like to pursue yet. Um, 
and I'm still like building up my oyster inventory on the farm. And I was most excited about my direct to customer side of things that I just sort of ran with that um, beginning early last year um, when I had all the licensing worked out. Um, And I got started with that and, you know, was game to make this year my kind of my big branch out year once I had, you know, enough backlog of oyster inventory on the farm ready for it. But of course, now we've got this coronavirus situation. And so um, I'm feeling very uh, lucky that I spent all this time kind of cultivating my own customers and my own local market because I can kind of keep operating on that and I'm and doing okay. Um, so when this all goes away, I will explore restaurants and, you know, other exciting things. <laughs> We, we definitely want to hear about the changes that you've had to make or what you've seen as um, some big shifts in the market and stuff because of what's going on right now. But would you quickly be able to explain what a CSA is and how that works for some listeners that might not be as familiar with that model? Yeah, absolutely. Um, CSA traditionally stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, I call it Community Supported Aquaculture because... <laughs> you know, um, and yeah, or CSF, yep. <laughs> community supported fish, whatever. Um, but the CS is the community supported and the whole concept behind it is that you invest in a farm and in their product by paying ahead of time for a certain allotment of their product. And then, you know, there's all kinds of different models out there. Some farms do like free choice. They let you pick whatever you want. You get a certain number of items every week. Um, Some farms do it, you know, in in different, over different time periods, like it's a weekly pickup or a monthly pickup or whatever it is. Um, And I, I, because I haven't really had a physical location yet, um, I've been doing deliveries. I do one weekly delivery um, and then customers can sort of, you know, opt in or opt out. If they don't want oysters that week, they don't have to have them. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. And the delivery part, I'm sure now is even more enticing for people. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about how coronavirus has affected you? Or maybe not. Maybe I, I saw your Instagram <laughs> post and you said that the oysters could really care less what's going on in the, in the <laughs> economy right now. Um, what, what's changed or not for you? Um, it's been a really interesting time. Um, as I think I said earlier, I feel really uh, lucky that I had a whole little gaggle of customers kind of already and had spent time sort of building up some name recognition for myself. Um, and I really, my <laughs> my business has actually increased over the last four weeks or so. Yay, I'm clapping. Yeah. You can't see me, but I'm clapping. <laughs> Yeah, it's been really, it's been really cool. And it's been, a, I think, a combination of things of just like me being aware that people are home and trying to be a little bit more present on social media. And a lot of my, you know, existing customers telling their friends and like sharing pictures of the oysters that they got for me on social media and just like, just been sort of a combination of things. But it's been really really cool to see people be excited about buying local products directly from the producer, even like, you know, in the midst of a crazy crisis. Um, And it kind of makes sense. I mean, it is easier if I bring you food, you don't have to leave your house. (laughs) Right. 
Right. And delicious food like oysters that maybe make people feel like it's a little special or it's, you know, it's a little, it's a nice yeah. uh, way to celebrate something and maybe feel a little bit normal. Yeah, totally. Well, I have to say, Emily um, actually dropped oysters by my house. She hung them on the, the doorknob to keep our social distance um, awesome. <laughs> this past weekend. And I have to say it it was, it was kind of like that special sort of thing where when you're doing your weekly shop or your bi-weekly shop, because we're all trying to avoid going out in public, you don't necessarily buy oysters <laughs> because no. they don't have a very long shelf life. So to have them just kind of dropped off um, on a random day that wasn't my big shop day was great because it was like this, this really fresh, really beautiful, clean product that just kind of made dinner feel, I don't know, extravagant. (laughs) Now, Emily, I'm super curious and I, you know, we could probably spend a whole podcast just talking about this kind of thing. But, um, for some of us, I, I will admittedly say that I'm not a huge seafood eater and I'm so sorry. I wish I could. (laughs) Um, but I know that there's like a whole, um, you know, like ethos behind oysters and like from where, like geographically where they're grown and the different types of like the, the physical format of them, like bigger and smaller and sweeter or saltier. Um, can you just give like a little bit for some of the folks like me about like what, what are the special and delicacy part of oysters? Like why, you know, you got, you grow them in Freeport or like, what what makes Freeport the best place to grow them? Yeah, um, I, I I no in no way am I trying to say that Freeport grows the best oysters. Um, oysters are really they are they're a really interesting species, uh, little critter. Um, the species that we primarily grow here in Maine is grown from uh, like the Canadian Maritimes all the way down to Mexico. It has a huge range of like temperatures and environments that it can survive in. Um, and it's flavor and like salinity profile and all that is totally determined by the environment that it grows in. Um, so we like here in Maine, we have the Damerscotta river, which is sort of like, you know, renowned in the oyster world as producing some of the best oysters out there, but it's totally subjective, um, I think, to personal taste. Um, My oysters, and I tend to prefer oysters that come from more like open ocean type environments and less from like river type environments, which tend to have a little bit more um, like brackish water influence, more fresh water. They tend to be, uh, I, I don't, I am, this is where I, this is where I'm a bad oyster farmer because I don't really like the whole tasting thing is a little uh, above and beyond me. Like I've got salty and sweet, (laughs) my my, like flavor, flavor descriptors. Um, and I tend to like oysters that are a little bit on the brinier side and less on the like minerally kind of like earthy side, which is often what you get from oysters that are like grown way up creeks. Um, yeah, river oysters, they, they um, well, oysters in general are very high in zinc, is my yep. understanding. And so I do feel like that that kind of comes forward, and I don't know why, but I have noticed that sometimes river oysters will have that more metallic um, yeah. kind of taste to them. It's like wine, right? Like whatever region they're grown in is going to have that type of soil yes. profile and, and things like that. 
when I used to waitress and we had oysters on the menu, people would ask me, are these Pacific oysters? Are they Atlantic? If they're from Maine, where river, like you said, the Damascara River, like what river are they from? And people would ask me very specific questions. And it felt like I was explaining a type of wine to somebody or, you know, craft beer and the hops uh-huh. content, you know? Um, and it just always was, was pretty foreign to me because in my mind, you know, I was like, oh, it's an oyster. It's from the ocean. It's going to have a similar kind of thing. But there really is a, a whole different like flavor profile depending on where they're grown. Yeah, absolutely. And I use that analogy. The oysters are kind of like wine um, all the time because this is a question that people are always interested in. And I'll, you know, I'll drop off oysters for a new customer customer and they'll be like, well, what are these? <laughs> and I'll be like, they're Emily's oysters. <laughs> and they're like, but no, but like, what are they? And it's like, we have all these, you know, all the oysters in Maine, they're just named by the business that grows them. Often they're just named after like whatever river or bay or island they're grown near. They're all the same species. And the only thing that makes them different is how they're grown and the environment that they're grown in. Um, because essentially the way an oyster eats is it sucks in seawater it filters everything in that water out and you know consumes or expels you know everything that's in that little bit of seawater um so whatever you know whatever is in that area in terms of algae and plankton and runoff and minerals and like it's kind of gross when you think a little bit too much about it (laughs) um but yeah that's that's really what makes oysters unique um and what affects their flavor profile now, how do you grow an oyster? Because, I mean, how do you breed an oyster? Like, where yeah. where do baby oysters come from? Where do they come from? When That's a, a great when question. a boy oyster loves a girl oyster, <laughs> what happens? Well, so first, cool little fun fact: oysters are generally hermaphroditic, so they flip flop sexes during their lives. Um, Interesting, which is cool. Um, the way that most people, especially here in Maine, grow oysters um, is that we buy baby oysters. Essentially, we call them seed oysters um, at varying sizes from, you know, one millimeter up to about a half an inch, depending on how much money you want to spend. The bigger the oyster you buy, the more expensive they are. Um, and the higher the their survival rate that first year is. Um and these little baby oysters are produced at one of um, various, we have, I think, like maybe three, maybe four hatcheries in the state now um, oh. that essentially just like crank out baby oysters by the millions in the early spring. Um, and they get, you know, delivered, dispersed, mailed to um, oyster farmers. And we, I take them. I, when I get them this year, I'm starting uh, with three millimeter oysters. So I'm, I'm getting a whole, I think a hundred thousand three millimeter oysters. So it's going to like, look essentially like a bag of like large sand. (laughs) hundred thousand? A hundred thousand. Wow. And yep. And I'll probably lose some of them in the growing process. Um, this first year, especially, uh, some just like an expected survival rate. You know, there probably is, and I don't, I'm not going to remember what it is, Um, but I seem to lose, like, maybe 5% in the first year. Well, that's not too bad. No, it's not, and and it all, you know, 
generally comes down to how meticulous I am in like keeping them clean and keeping their the bags that they're stored in in their early days like free of gunk and algae and anything that might um, obstruct them from you know opening opening their little mouths and filtering water. Um, and then you know you asked how do you grow an oyster. And the answer to that is that there are like lots of different ways to grow oysters, um, a whole slew of different practices um, that you'll see just here in Maine. It seems like primarily uh, folks tend to grow them on the surface using different kinds of gear that float, essentially. They're just like floating mesh bags um, that you keep the oysters in. As they grow, they get bigger mesh hole sizes to allow seawater in for them to filter and you just you kind of keep them floating on the surface where you can keep an eye at them you can get at them um, and tend them that way but there's also you know all kinds of gear that's designed for sitting on the bottom some people grow oysters out to like an inch or two inches on the surface and then they actually bottom plant them so they scatter them on some mud flat somewhere you know that they have access to um, and let them just grow in the environment kind of the way they would naturally. I do a combination of things. I tend to keep most of them on the surface. Um, I have some experiments in bottom planting going on um, that I'll go snorkeling for this summer and see how they're doing. That's really, that's really neat. Um, I think that they're, and I've, I've heard a lot about oysters that they're really environmentally positive, right? Yes, they are. They're super there, there's almost nothing that is bad about oyster farming, <laughs> I want to say. Although, you know, people would argue differently. But they filter seawater in. Um, often in the process, they remove from the environment things like nitrogen that humans are kind of responsible for overloading the bays and coastal waterways with. Um, it's a byproduct of runoff from, like, farms and, and roads and stuff like that. Um, so they, they essentially clean the water is how most people will, will put it in simple terms, um, which is true. And then the other thing that's really cool about them is that I don't have to feed them or, you know, I don't use any fertilizer. There's no like antibiotics or anything that goes in um, to an oyster farm. And, you know, I, I use some gasoline to get out to the farm. I have about a, a half a mile boat ride to get out there. But once I'm out there, I'm not burning fuel um or anything like that so it's it's really yeah it's gentle on the environment for sure low impact farming yeah, yeah. it's definitely something we need for sure definitely definitely <laughs> now you said that um amanda had helped you kind of negotiate all the leasing and everything and this is something i've always wondered i grew up um inland in Massachusetts, like three hours from the coast. Mm -hmm. So I'm just totally baffled by how fishermen's and um, fish farms, just different people who share the coastal waters, how that's negotiated, how the leasing process process happens. Like, so how do you get to say that? Like, I get to put my oysters here in this water. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's really, really complex. Um, yeah, I would, I, I feel like um, leasing, like fisheries and marine leasing is like pages and pages of documents and 
uh, like anything I've tried to look up online is very, it seems really, really complex. Oh, yeah. yeah. The public resource for it is the main department of marine resources. They have an aquaculture tab on their website and it just like, it, it is the most intimidating, baffling, like hard to understand nightmare of a website I've ever encountered um try to explain it (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, I can I'll I'll try to like pare it down for you because I think it is important for people to like kind of have a vague understanding of um because essentially the ocean is like is state-owned property um it's not no part of the ocean below the low tide line is owned privately Um, And I don't own my farm. I essentially rent from the state a little plot of, you know, ocean bottom. And it's, you know, subject to a really stringent process of essentially, you know, like eliminating and proving that there are no other pre-existing uses for that area that I'm not getting in anyone's way. I'm not taking away from any other fishery that could possibly exist there or, you know, not obstructing navigation, not encroaching on an essential habitat or an endangered habitat of any kind. Um, so it's just, there's this big long checklist and like, you know, a, several tens of pages of application process and mapping and public hearings and yeah, uh, it's involved. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you going through all of that um, legal legal uh, in issues to bring us oysters and everything. I um, I think you're right that some people probably don't understand the the legs and the requirements and probably some the, the permitting process and all that that goes into it. It's le- it's more involved it seems like than just buying a piece of land might be. I'm sure there's obviously issues there, but um, yeah, renting renting uh, intertidal land from the state sounds a little more complicated. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's, it's not it's not really a walk in the park, but it's not so bad either. Our state is pretty they're pretty organized and supportive and mostly helpful. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, it would you mentioned you know at the beginning talking about your relationship with Amanda and how she really helped you and that and that was really paramount for you to getting your farm started. Um, what other roles and qualities do you see that women bring to this industry that are unique and valuable? It seems the sense of collaboration was definitely one. What else do you think that women are bring that it's unique to this marine industry? Um, that's a great question. I, I think the one thing that I notice, um, that, And I don't know if this is just like something that, you know, women are just better at. (laughs) I tend to try to steer away from saying these kinds of things, but um, all of the women that I know of who operate in this industry are um, really, you know, generally very well respected in their areas for having like taken the time to communicate their plans with everybody who exists in the area and, you know, like really making sure that they're not stepping on anyone's toes in terms of, you know, trying to lease ocean space that, you know, somebody might want to use for lobstering or, you know, just generally I find that 
the women that I interact with in this industry are better equipped to collaborate and communicate, especially um, with people in the area who might also, you know, have some interest or some stake in whatever space they're using or whatever their market might be or that they're trying to pursue or, you know, any of those things. Um, I think that is the, the biggest thing that I've noticed. That's, that's cool. I think that makes a lot of sense to me when it, about just what I've women that I've worked with a lot that really were just wanting to make sure that, um, people who need to be involved are involved and that this feels like, not like you're asking permission, like, Oh, is it okay if I put up my oyster farm here? But like, you know, you don't want to cause, you don't want to cause anyone any strife or problems or even for yourself. Like you don't want to realize down the line, like, Oh no, someone like there's this development that's happening that I didn't know about or, um, you know, whatever the issue might be. But yeah, I think that definitely tracks with what, how, how I've worked with women too, really just wanting to make sure everything's on the up and up and, yeah benefit a lot of people yeah yeah I've never had any female sea farmer try to pull any like shysty business on me (laughs) and and that is just unfortunately is not the case with some of my like nearby male competitors and you know colleagues in the industry at all which is interesting I think yeah so yeah have you had any um like unique interactions um as like a female like something that you think that you experienced because you were female in this industry um or just as a woman oyster farmer in general any unique female I think I think it gives me kind of an interesting edge in the marketing department um because I think I stand out for being a female in this industry um and I think that, you know, and, and any time, and, you know, I've, I've worked my whole life on the water on boats in entirely, you know, male dominated sectors. Um, and I think always is the case that people are like, whoa, like you are, you don't look like all of your, you know, crew members or, you know, <laughs> you don't look like most other stern men on lobster boats. Um, and I think, Again, because I'm a woman, I'm a little bit more approachable in in talking about these things. And sometimes it's like not. Sometimes I I sort of hate that because people are like, "What do your parents think about what you're doing?" Or like, you know, oh, I, no. I, I, I get the condescending side of it too, for sure. <laughs> Mostly from like old guys. What do your um, parents think about this? <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. You didn't marry an oyster. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, um, you know, the people who are, who are less, uh, condescending about it, I think, you know, I'm, I'm more approachable just because I'm a woman, I think. And because, you know, I have geared my marketing towards interacting more, uh, intimately and like directly with people. Um, it gives me just kind of a cool voice in that sense. Um, and because a lot of sea farmers don't interact with, customers they are often you know just unloading oysters at a restaurant or at a wholesaler um I think I have that to my advantage too which is cool do you think that age plays any part in this like I'm thinking I'm still hung up on that comment about like what do your parents think 
um, I, you know, if you're relatively new to this industry and a younger person in this industry and coupled with being a woman, do you, do you think that the age or the newness to the industry has any effect on how people might view you? Probably. I'm not sure I really notice it. Okay. Um, I've also gotten really pretty good at completely ignoring what people <laughs> might think about me and what I do with my time and my life. Um, I, yeah, I am, I have a pretty thick skin to that and uh, a whole probably slew of kind of sassy retorts that I good. respond with when I feel like I'm <laughs> being judged. Uh, <laughs> um, I've just noticed a lot in the like, in the production industries like in with farming and fishing that like the longevity of your career really plays a part in it like if you've been oh you know so-and-so's been doing this for 30 years like you know they are the authority on this subject and they know what's going on and it just seems like that's yeah. maybe that's a very unique main thing I'm not sure but um or if it's something about these particular industries no matter where you go but it just seems like the longer you've been in the industry people that really really means a lot to people yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, I think, you know, we do have some real, like, kind of long career, like, heavy hitters in the oyster industry here in Maine um, that would definitely apply to. Um, I don't really interact with it very much at all. Um, and I would say also that, like, you know, part of the reason that I have crafted my business model the way I have and really focusing on direct to customer and like, you know, me personally selling my oysters to people who want to buy them is so that I can circumvent dealing with, you know, some crusty old shellfish dealer who, you know, might not treat me very well or might pay me less than he pays, you know. Joe Schmo, who's been growing oysters in the Damariscotta River for 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's probably a, just a tactic that I've developed in, you know, working alongside <laughs> old dudes <laughs> right? Um, for a yeah, long time. But yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at uh, eliminating all possibility of those types of interactions, I think. And, you know, by, by doing most of my own sales the way I am, um, I don't, really have to deal with that a whole lot mostly my customers are really fantastic people who are so excited to support me um you mentioned earlier that for you personally that you felt like business had kind of um, picked up a little bit in the last few weeks maybe as a result of quarantine and more people just having um, or wanting the convenience of foods to be delivered to their home but kind of historically oysters like in the 19th century were like working class food this is something people had on on lunch break. And, um, now I'm coming from New York city. I used to live in New York and mm -hmm. I know it's a big part of New York's history. Do you think in general, there is a trend towards eating more oysters because they're kind of like, they were staple for a lot of people. And then I feel like we yes. over ate them and then they went down and are they coming back in popularity? Do you think? I, I think that, yes, I think so. I hope so. Um, <laughs> this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and it's also sort of played into my business planning. Um, I think that, you know, oysters are definitely on the up and up, super trendy right now, especially in like restaurant settings, um, which 
would suggest that they are coming back. I am really part of the reason why I like to encourage people to eat them at home as much as possible because I don't think that they need to be this like kind of fancy schmancy white tablecloth product exclusively. Um, because they are so good for the environment, they're a really healthy source of protein, and it's like really easy to grow huge volumes of them. Um, Maine does it every year. Our the number of oysters we produce in the state is like exponentially increasing every year. Um, the industry is really growing, uh, which would suggest hopefully that we can also kind of increase the demand for them. Um, I I think that there's definitely potential for them to become more of a a regular like home dining seafood staple and that the only barrier to that is like making them a little bit more accessible um and a little bit maybe cheaper which you know is something that I can do now that I'm I'm licensed to you know deal directly with customers and do my own sale uh, my own retailing um I can offer them at prices that are you know, more often than not way cheaper than they're going to be at a restaurant or even at a, you know, a seafood market. Um, and I, I will tell you that my eight year old niece like frequently requests oysters for any sort of occasion. Yeah. Yeah. And my sister is like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) (laughs) No other eight year old is like, so could I get oysters on my birthday and uh, Sunday and Christmas and every holiday. That's awesome. I love that. I tried to get my, um, almost three-year-old to eat one on the half shell. Um, Mm -hmm. and this is my children love pate and olives and, you know, um, squid Mm -hmm. is one of their favorite foods. Um, so I really thought that he would go for it, but he kind of just licked it. And then (laughs) (laughs) so maybe next time. Oh, that's funny. You, you know, find him a little uh, special accoutrement to go on top, like put something that he'll really, uh, really like on top of it. Cocktail yeah, sauce. I, I just kept it the way I was eating it, which was just a little tiny bit of cocktail sauce and lemon. And that's probably not his favorite way to have it. Um, which kind of brings me back to, we're talking about how to like increase the popularity of an oyster. And I feel like so many people um, only think about them on the half shell. And so then they're thinking of like this <laughs> raw, cold, kind of slimy thing yeah. <laughs> and it's not super attractive for most people's palates um, but there's so many ways to cook an oyster and it just disappoints me that people don't utilize them in all the other ways they can be utilized like I I fried some when you brought them to me last week and one of my favorite ways ever was I had them like on the half shell in New Orleans at this restaurant that had like pork belly and blue cheese on them or something but- <laughs> Like the most decadent thing I've ever had, but so delicious. Um, That's awesome. And like nobody knows how to cook them. You know, they all just think you have to eat them raw. Well, what other ways are there? As a novice, tell me more. What else can you do with an oyster? Oh Oh, my gosh. You can grill them. You can fry them. Um, Emily, how do you eat your oysters? Um, I am not going to be helpful in this part of the conversation because I love them raw. Um, Although... I think my second favorite thing to do with them is to grill them, mostly because when I get lazy and I don't want to shuck them, essentially, if you put them on the grill, <laughs> they shuck themselves. <laughs> and you mean put them on the grill in the shell? Yeah, you just stick them on the grill in the shell, the cup side of the shell, 
down resting on the grate and they just like steam in their juices and when they're done the shell pops open it's pretty great yeah most people don't realize you can do that with most um like uh shell fish like uh, clams or mussels or you can totally throw them on the grill and they'll just kind of steam and they're they're wonderful and they get like the smoky flavor too and they take Mm -hmm. just, just a little bit like a little bit of time well, I, I consider myself, like, I know my way around a kitchen. Okay, I'm not by no means a gourmet chef. And this might show why some people are very, if you don't understand, you know, some other parts of cooking, you might understand some, like, an oyster or something. Whenever someone has said, like, a grilled oyster or a grilled clam, I've never understood it because I'm like, they're going to fall through the grates <laughs> because I'm picturing taking the, like, slimy oyster out of its shell and putting it on the grill. And that is what I had been picturing every single time until this moment. Well, Sandy, when uh, quarantine's over, we're, we're going to have a big um, something, a big I don't know if you call it a barbecue yeah, fish, or whatever. Fish a big yeah. at my house, and there will be grilled shellfish. <laughs> that is so funny. And maybe, I mean, hopefully I'm not the only person to have thought that, or I'm going to feel real bad about myself. But um, this must be clearly be the education part about how to cook food. And I think even seafood sometimes people don't. It's just, it's hard to know what to do. Like, it's easy yeah. to know what to do with a chicken or a piece of steak maybe, but... This, okay, you have, um, you know, a, a piece of fish that maybe you haven't really heard of, like a redfish or something, or even salmon, you don't want to mess it up. So it's something like an oyster, like, well, if I don't eat it raw, how else do I do it? Yeah, totally. I think that's where I have a really kind of cool, unique opportunity too, as like, you know, being on this first term basis with all of my customers right now, um, and that I can field all these questions. And I often get a like, so what else, like, what, what? how else could I eat these? <laughs> like, or I don't want to shuck all of these. Like, what are, are there, is, is there anything I can do to make this easier? Um, yeah. Shocking is, is um, I'm, I'm fast and I'm pretty confident at it. I was a line cook for many years and mm. in places that served them on the half shell. And so I'm good and I'm fast and I have a decent oyster knife too. And man, after about two dozen, I'm annoyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can only imagine like someone who's just trying to get into this, like trying to do it at home and hopefully not cutting their hand open. (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to recount the first time that I ate oysters. I remember feeling like it was a very just visceral eating experience because you like (laughs) take this alive animal, you stab it open, you twist it with a knife, you like, you know, put some thing on top, like a juice of some kind, and then you just suck it down whole. It just felt yeah. very, very primal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It definitely is that. I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's like the height of freshness. And um, I think that's so cool. And, and the, the thing with oysters too, that I'm like kind of constantly reminding people is that they're alive. As long as their shell is closed, they are alive. Um, and they'll actually stay alive in your refrigerator for a like kind of a shockingly long time. Um, like, depends on the time of year but up like for months they will stay alive in their shell they won't oh, be i can buy them in bulk then. you you can <laughs> i don't buy them go bad, but... they no they're they're pretty amazing um some people even 
going into winter when they're they're getting their farms ready to go into hibernation for the winter, they actually pull their entire crop out of the water in December and stick all of their oysters into a walk-in cooler for like five months until the water warms up again. And they will stay happily alive in their shell um, as long as they have a little bit of moisture and some air circulation. They don't uh, need food? No. Uh, up here, I went, once our ocean water dips below 40 degrees, they kind of go into hibernation. Huh. Um, and they will, you know, our oysters are kind of attuned to this and they spend the fall like really beefing up and storing up energy uh, for a little hibernation period. Like little tiny black bears. Yeah, they are. So like, <laughs> especially, especially like in the fall and the winter, oysters that you buy will stay alive in your fridge for a long time. I generally like recommend that people eat them within like seven to 10 days because they will sort of start to lose their, uh, their water, their liquor after a little while. Um, and they'll just be kind of on the dry side when you pop them Mm -hmm. open. But as long as their shells are closed, they are alive and they will not kill you. (laughs) And they'll taste probably just as good as they did the day they came out of the water. Wow. Wow. That is surprising. I did not, I would not have thought that. I never knew. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Just dispelling the myths of oysters out there. The other other myth that people ask me a lot about is the the only eating oysters in months that end with R. Mm, I have heard that. That is not a thing anymore. I don't understand. They used used to say that you should only eat oysters in months that end end with R, I think, right? And that's what, October, November, December, September, October, November. Um, And that was because uh of primarily because of poor refrigeration <laughs> um in the colder months oysters kept better they stayed alive longer and they were safe to eat um mm-hmm. oysters that are mishandled in summer months they can have kind of exploding uh bacteria in- inside their shells in the little critters themselves um that can make people sick but modern refrigeration has made that kind of not a problem anymore at all so wow so that is an old school myth real old school yeah it's still prevalent though i've i've heard it like kind of recently people still yeah people still say it it's just not it's not, not. And, and harvesting regulations and like recording harvest times and temperatures and all that are so strict now that like you'd really have to be a major violator and whatever restaurant or dealer is buying this shellfish has to really be negligent in order for something to like go wrong in the handling of a fresh oyster during the summer. So that's really good to discuss that too, about the like safety regulations. Cause I wonder if that is maybe a, even a a small mental barrier for people of like, well, like, how do I know if it's safe? How do I know if it's safe? Um, Yeah. I've heard, I've heard similar things about people wanting to can their own food. Like, oh, I'd love to do some can, you know, my extra tomatoes or something, but I don't know, you know, how might like, what if I don't do it right and they grow botulism or something, you know? So and then your can is have... pretty bulgy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, the smell might be different. Maybe, I don't, I don't know, but I'm just, so I'm wondering if um, maybe some of the safety things, if there's this thought around oysters that they could potentially have bacteria, um, people won't know how to ask about it. So do you want to just take like a minute or two and like talk about what some of the safety stuff is that Maine does and that you do? Yeah. I mean, essentially it, it, it is, it's a temperature thing. Um, 
as long as oysters are kept refrigerated uh, and, you know, eaten pretty soon after they've been shucked, if they're going to be consumed raw, they're totally safe. Um, the only, the I guess the, the like nuts and bolts of this bacteria thing is that we have in our water something called vibriosis, which exists in our water, is not really harmful um, unless, you know, it's, you know, and it's in all of our oysters because they filter seawater. Um, it's not harmful unless something like holding that bacteria, so an oyster um, is allowed to warm up, the bacteria can then multiply to the point where it causes, you know, illness in humans, um, death in like real, real extreme cases. Um, and you hear about it more often. I think this is really interesting uh, in oyster industries from the south, like Florida. Uh, you hear more about oyster illnesses down there than you really ever do in Maine. We have very few cases in Maine, even though it is present in our waterways. Um, but it it's all just comes down to handling and uh, refrigeration primarily. Um, and, you know, how long it takes to get an oyster from the water to onto ice or into a cooler. Uh, and I think that that is really, I mean, the other thing that can be harmful, but that is, is um, and I get asked about frequently by customers here during the season, is we have um, red tides, mm -hmm. which uh, most people are familiar with affecting the soft shell like steamer clam industry. Um, but red tide is sort of a similar, um, like, uh, biotoxin situation where the oyster is generally totally healthy, but there has been some kind of bloom of algae that is harmful to humans when it's, when it's consumed. Um, and, and oysters just like clams are subject to that. They will because they filter, you know, they just filter everything that's in the water. They'll take in that algae and they'll be toxic for a period of time while a red tide bloom is going on. Um, and, you know, in the same way that the clam industry is regulated, our state just, you know, is testing the water quality constantly. And when they detect it, they shut down harvest areas. And, and uh, unless you've got some real like rogue harvester out there which no one would do because it, you know if if oysters that are contaminated or clams that are contaminated get into the market it's really because of all of our tagging regulations it's really easy to trace it right back to you know the harvester that is the culprit um and so it just like it just doesn't happen that that things that might make people sick make it into restaurants or into stores um hardly ever. So that's really, that's really good to know. And like you said, with the tagging and that you'd be able to trace it back to the specific harvester. Um, that's awesome too. So that the, I would imagine the response could be pretty quickly if there was something bad going around. You know, yeah. Some, there was some case you could figure who that was pretty quickly. Yeah. So hopefully those, some of those things will put people's mind at ease. If there is anyone out there who was nervous about getting into trying oysters or any other seafood worried about some of the safety regulations or, or anything, you know, any sort of um, uh, safety implications for that. So um, we would encourage you to go and try some local Maine oysters from one of our favorite oyster farmers. Emily, where can people find you online? Where can they sign up for the Oyster CSA and read your blogs and 
It's all on my website. Um, It's emilysoysters.com. I have a couple of different farm share uh, CSA options that are available right now. There's a smaller size and a larger size. Um, So all that info is is on my website. And um, what else? Oh, I was also going to say that I'm slated to be a vendor at both the Portland Maine Farmer's Market and the Bath Farmer's Market this year. Um, wow. And I think, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And I think as of right now, both of those markets are planning on happening um, with probably some pretty strict, you know, guidelines about not touching food and, <laughs> and that sort right. of thing. Um but I think I'll be in Monument Square on Wednesdays um, in Portland at the Farmer's Market and also in the Waterfront Park in Bath, Maine on Saturdays in the morning, uh, both times in the morning. So you can find me in person there. Um, and yeah, my Instagram and Facebook is Emily's Oysters. Everything is just Emily's Oysters. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. There wasn't a second Emily's Oysters out there to nope. compete with. No, nope, none. No competition yet. <laughs> uh, well, we do hope that those farmers markets absolutely get up and get going um, for your sake and for all of us too, who want um, other main products and, um, and love being able to go down to our farmer's market and get those. So um, we definitely have our fingers crossed that all this is um, not going to affect that, all our situation right now. Um, yeah. that we also wanted to let folks know that, uh, Femidish, you can find us on Instagram at Femidish and on our website at Femidish.com and read our blogs and see the history behind some of the stuff that we've been doing and, uh, learn a little more about hope and myself. So please go and check us out on Femidish, uh, on the internet, uh, while we are doing all this virtually and Hopefully someday we will be able to have a really great in-person meeting and be able to meet every all our listeners out there in person and um, uh, and Emily too. So thank you so much, Emily, for coming on today and chatting with us. This was really cool to learn a little bit about the oyster industry from you. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you, Hope, and we will see you next time. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over